Well, good morning again. Let me say welcome now, not only to those of you who are here in our contemporary service, but welcome also to those of you who are joining us in our traditional sanctuary right now. I'm glad that we have this opportunity to be together and learn together as one church family from God's Word together. Speaking of which, we're going to be learning from the Bible today, and I'd love for you to be able to follow along and read along with the passages that we're learning from if you'd like to. If you don't have a Bible with you but you'd like to use one, we're going to have ushers coming up the aisles in both of our worship venues with Bibles. If you'd like to borrow one during this service, feel free to borrow one from them, and you can just stick it on the shelf or the table in the back of the room after worship today. We are continuing our series today called The Good Life on Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount. And we're through the introduction now. We're, we're kind of through that part where Jesus began by casting a vision for the good life with him in the kingdom of God and inviting us into it. And now we're getting down to the very practical stuff of everyday life. Now we're going to listen to Jesus and try to understand what Jesus is saying to us as he teaches us about the nitty gritty of everyday life. But I think you'll experience as we read and learn together today, as I've certainly experienced as I've been preparing for today, that I think Jesus opens up our eyes to see some things that we see all the time differently than we usually do. And to show you what I mean, I, kinda, I need your help to start with here. So if you would humor me for a moment, would you turn and look at somebody who's close to you and just keep on doing it? It's going to feel awkward for a minute. Looking someone in the eye always feels awkward. So if you don't want to look them in the eye, look at their hair. If they don't have hair, look at their shoulder, you know, whatever you got to do. What I want to tell you right now is as you're looking at them, your brain is trying to put a label on them, right? You got a category, male, female, older, younger. You're trying to think like professionally, family relationships. Who is this person? But they defy categorization. You can't put that person in a box. You can't put a label on them because they are one of the most amazing and complicated things ever created. They're one of the most mysterious animals on the earth. You are looking at a human being. And this human being has a story. They come from somewhere. They have a past they have a future in the traditional service. If you stop looking at people, so has everyone here. It's okay. They, you did better than the nine o'clock service though. The people that you are looking at, they have a past and a future. They come from somewhere. They're going somewhere. They, have, they are full of mystery and wonder. They have emotions and thoughts and joys and pains and plans. They are amazing. And they are made to last forever. It doesn't always look like that on the outside for all of us. I know. Their bodies are going to change, certainly. But they are designed to last for eternity, which is different than most other things you encounter in your everyday life. You are looking, or you were looking, at one of the marvels of God's world. A true wonder. Now, thank you for already moving ahead of me here. Look around the room a little bit. I want to show you the one thing in the world I think is more amazing and complicated and wondrous than a human being. I'm looking around more human beings. <laughs> this is a representation of human community. This is people, individual human beings together in one place relating to one another. This is taking one thing, one human being who is already unfathomably complicated and weaving all these people together into a fabric together that is now inconceivably complicated. And it is the potential for amazing, amazing good it has the potential for amazing joy. It can be really good, and it can be horrible. It can go really wrong. It can become violent and hateful and messed up in more ways than we can imagine. It can go really well. It can go really bad. And I think we all know this. We certainly learn it along the way as we grow up. We all know this, and we try to react to it in different ways. I think some of us, I know some of us, react to the complexity and the potential for good and the potential for danger by saying, you know what we need? 
We need something to rein in the chaos of all this complexity. We need some rules around here. And I am one of these people who reacts like that. I am a firstborn child. I love rules and order. I like clear expectations. I like knowing what's inbounds and what's out of bounds. I like to know what's helpful and what's not helpful. When person A says or does this, how is person B supposed to respond? That doesn't work all that great in marriage, I found out, but I think clarity is good. The reason it doesn't always work is what a lot of the others of you already know. Some of, some of you know right away, I think we all get here eventually, some of you realize much more quickly that rules are never enough. They're not going to get it done. There are, there are problems with rules that we can never get around or get over. For one thing, a rule never applies to every single circumstance. There's always exceptions to the rule. Also, we are always trying to break them. We're looking for every way around the rules we can find. So much so that the people who really love rules make secondary sets of rules to enforce and punish us when we break the first set of rules. Then we find ways around those rules. Rules are never enough. But the real weakness of rules, the real problem with rules, is that they are so darn external. They're outside of us, and they lack the power to make human community truly good. They're kind of like the out-of-bounds lines on a basketball court, or whatever sport you want, but basketball is one of my favorites. The out-of-bounds lines on a basketball court. They're meant to keep the players out of the stands, which usually works. They're meant to keep the players out of the stands, but they can't actually make the game good. They can't make the players faster or stronger or jump higher or throw a beautiful pass or move into exactly the right place on the court at the right time to receive that pass. For that to happen, something has to happen in the players and among the players themselves. The rules can keep the game together, but they can't actually make the game good. And don't we actually want to be good at the game of human life together? We're in the middle of a series here called The Good Life, listening to Jesus' vision and articulation and description of the goodness of life as God has always intended it, the goodness of life with him and in him in the kingdom of God. And rules aren't going to get us there. And this is where the Sermon on the Mount picks up today in the middle of chapter 5. And Jesus wades in to some very practical realities, some of the experiences that we encounter in our everyday lives, and begins to describe how this works in those situations. So I'd love to show you how this works. If you have a Bible with you, you can open it up to Matthew chapter 5. We'll also have the verses on the screens in just a moment for you to follow along. It's Matthew 5, verse 21. And if you have one of the Quest Bibles here, it's uh, on page 1417, if that makes it a little bit easier to find. And the first topic that Jesus walks into here is the topic of anger and conflict. And so I asked the kids in our children's sermon here in this service a minute ago, how many of them have ever had their feelings hurt, or been in a conflict, or hurt somebody else? So maybe that applies to us too. Have any of you here ever been in a conflict, ever experienced anger before? This passage is for us. Let's take a look at this. Matthew 5, 21, Jesus says this. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. Okay, let's just stop there for a second. Jesus is acknowledging a rule here, right? And this is a pretty good rule. This is a good boundary. Let's not murder one another. Good rules are a good thing and they have a good place. But it doesn't actually go far enough. It's not actually going to solve the problem of anger and conflict in the lives that we share together. So Jesus would keep going and diagnose the problem a little more deeply and help us move forward a little more deeply. So this is what Jesus says next. We keep reading here in verse 22. And you can just stay on this page. This is where we're going to read from uh, throughout the message today. Matthew 5, 22. 
But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. And again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, no, hold on, anyone tempted to do that? Say to a brother or sister, Raka? That's, of course, not. That's an Aramaic word. Uh, Jesus spoke Aramaic, and that was an Aramaic insult. If we think it meant something like empty. So maybe the best English translation of that word would be like airhead or something. That's my best guess. So anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, or the equivalent thereof, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Okay, let's stop and think about how Jesus has pressed this issue a little more deeply now. Now Jesus is getting us to deal with the issue of the anger in our lives, the anger that we experience inevitably throughout life, and how it is that we interact with other people in those experiences. And, and he's putting his finger on the problem that we all experience so often when we reduce the human beings that we're in conflict with from being human beings to something else, something less, just an object of the conflict. When we reduce them to just being fools or ignorant or part of the problem that's making this all so complicated in the first place. And when we do that, when we're in conflict with somebody like that, and I think we do this all the time, we're no longer interested in why they think what they think or why they feel what they feel, how they got to this point in life, where they're trying to get from here. We're not interested in the mystery and the wonder of this human being, and they are that that we're in conflict with right now. We're not interested in their emotions and thoughts, their joys, their pains, and their plans. We don't fully turn to them as human beings, as I invited us all to do just a few moments ago to turn to each other and see them, and we do not serve them, and we very, very, very probably do not love them. We simply are trying to get through them or past them, or over them, or around them, or by them, or whatever we got to do, because when we do that, we will win this conflict. We will win the conflict, but Jesus says we will have lost the game. We'll be losing in the game of life. There are some boundaries that say don't actually murder one another, but we need more than that if we're actually going to be good at human community, at sharing life together. So what should we do instead? Jesus tells a little story to illustrate this, so I want to read that to you. This is the next verses, Matthew 5, 23 and 24. This is, turns the page in the Quest Bible. It's 14, 18. Jesus says, Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and now he's talking to some first century Israelites about the altar at the temple in Jerusalem. If you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar, First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Okay, let's talk about this for a second. This is an extreme example that Jesus is using with his hearers. For one thing, Jesus is a Galilean, and he's speaking to others in the region of Galilee, which is up north in, the, in Israel, and the city of Jerusalem is way in the south. The temple, where they could be making a gift at the altar, was probably about a three-day walk away from their lives, from their spheres, and where he was teaching this to them. So he's telling them that if you have made a pilgrimage down to Jerusalem, you've already walked three days down there, and you are about to make your gift at the altar, which in that day might very well have been a live animal, leave it there, standing there, while you walk three days back to the people that you know that you could potentially be in conflict with, mend fences with them, and then walk back. And if you happen to find the animal still standing there in the courts, go ahead and offer your gift. It's a very extreme example. It's also an extreme example because this is the temple of God. 
This is their relationship with God. This is an act of worship of God. And Jesus wants them to see that their relationships with one another are so important that they would go so far as to press pause on their act of worship while they made peace with somebody who was angry with them. Now, I want to encourage and urge us to resist the temptation to take this example and turn it into some sort of new legalism, turn it into a new rule or a new law, as if Jesus were saying that it's illegal, it's wrong, it's out of bounds for you to worship God if anybody's ever angry with you. Because our whole lives are meant to be acts of worship that bring honor and attention to God. You couldn't go on living if Jesus didn't want you to worship at all if anybody was ever angry with you. I don't think Jesus means to turn this into a law for us any more than he means for us to always live three days' walk from Jerusalem or three days' walk from the place where you worship. Although sometimes walking to worship for three days might be just about what it takes to get our heads and hearts on straight to deal with the conflicts in our relationships. I don't think Jesus means for this to be a rule. He's telling this as a story to open up our eyes, to see what we do not always see, and to see the value of making peace in our relationships with one another. Also, I don't know, some of you I'm sure noticed this, but in this story, notice that it's not us, it's not the person who's addressed by this story who's angry, it's actually somebody else who has cause to be angry with us. Jesus says, if someone has something against you, then you do this. Jesus not only, not only wants you to be free from anger, he not only wants you to be released from the anger that binds us up and poisons our hearts and relationships, but Jesus wants us to care so much about other people that we would walk for a week, if that's what it took, to release them from anger, to release them from anger and from the poison of anger and unforgiveness in their lives. We'd take the three-day walk, we already walked to Jerusalem, and tack a week on top of it if that's what it took to make peace for somebody else who's angry with us. What makes a heart do that kind of thing? Can you make a rule about that? Could you ever enforce a rule like that? And if a rule's not going to do it, what will? I think a heart can turn to another person like that when it has first been turned to like that. I think a heart has the capacity to love and seek forgiveness like that when it has been loved and forgiven like that. And this example that Jesus gives, this is what God has done for us in Jesus. This is what God has done. He has reached across the distance, a great distance, an extreme distance, to come and make our relationship with him good when we could not ourselves. God has every reason to be angry with us. God would have every reason to call us fool. I don't think that name probably would have applied to anybody else more than it could have applied to me or maybe sometimes to you. We fail to walk in the ways of the God who made us and knows how we work and how we work well together. We fail to love and trust the God who has loved us at great cost. We hurt ourselves. We hurt other people that God loves very much. We hurt God's children. You mess with my kids, I'll probably be angry at you. God would have every reason to be angry with us. And yet God has turned toward us in the way that he invites us to turn toward one another. God sent Jesus to reach across the gap, to make peace with us, to make our relationship with him good, to take away the guilt of our sin, to set us free from the power of sin, 
This is what God has done for us. And now Jesus invites us to do it with one another, to turn toward the full human beings that you may be in conflict with. And notice in this passage that as Jesus describes these conflicts, he keeps saying brother or sister. Anyone who is angry with a brother or sister, or if you're offering your gift and you remember that a brother or sister has something against you. In Jesus' imagination, in his direct words here, he's thinking in the first order about other people in the family of God with whom you might have conflict. And conflict does sometimes arise in the church, among churches, between Christians. This is reality. And Jesus diagnoses this reality deeply and invites us forward in it. He's talking about brothers and sisters in the family of God. He's talking about other people whose hearts have been touched by the same love and radical grace of God that has touched your heart. And this is encouraging. It encourages us to believe that when you make that sacrifice, when you take that vulnerable risk to turn toward them, that you have reason to hope that they will turn also back to you, having been loved and forgiven as you are. You have that common experience and common language for conflict. Now, I think, just to be very practical here, I think Jesus would want us to honor the same values in the way that we interact or have conflict with other people who do not yet know Jesus, that he would want us to turn toward them, see them, care about them, love them, seek peace and forgiveness and reconciliation with them. But the dynamics might be different. You won't be able to, in your conversation, appeal to the shared experience of knowing the grace and the love of God in Jesus or sharing the vision of Jesus for human community and life together. It might not work the same. And maybe that heart won't turn back toward you when you have taken the risk of grace and turned toward it. It's nothing more than the costly road of Christian sacrifice. It's nothing more than the way of the cross. And Jesus invites us to walk with him in his way of life. Maybe God is using these words of Jesus to speak into your life. I know he's speaking into our life together as a family by his word. Maybe he's speaking into your life in a particular area of conflict, a relationship that's already broken, and inviting you to turn toward another human being in the kind of love and grace that has been shown to you. Or maybe God is planting a seed in all of our hearts by this. Maybe God's spirit is seeking to shape your heart and our hearts together for all the situations of conflict that we will inevitably face that we, because we've been taught by Jesus, will enter those conflicts differently. That we will enter those conflicts with human beings and turn toward them as God has first turned toward us. The first area that Jesus is talking to us about today through his word is the area of anger and conflict. But Jesus also enters into a second, very practical area of our lives. He enters into the area of marriage and sexuality, or maybe even more generally, the relationships between men and women. And he begins by acknowledging a rule. Let's take a look here. This is Matthew chapter 5, verse 27. And this is what Jesus says first. He says, You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Just pause there again. So Jesus begins by acknowledging a good rule. Good rules are good things. This is a good boundary. Sex works best in life between a husband and a wife. It's a good boundary for us to remember. But Jesus says that's not the whole issue. That's not getting at the issue that's in our hearts it doesn't really get at the issue that sometimes causes difficulty in human community. In fact, the very way that we look at one another reveals the issue in our hearts. So this is what Jesus says next in verse 28. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. 
It's not just the physical act of adultery that can be problematic for us. But when we look at another person, and this can be either gender, Jesus' audience probably was mostly male gathered on the mountain there that day, so he was talking in those terms. Could be any of us. But Jesus says when we look at one another with lust in our eyes and our hearts, the act of adultery has already begun in us. It's already begun in our hearts. Now, this is obviously a serious topic and something that I think we need to understand just exactly what is Jesus talking about. When Jesus says looking lustfully, he's talking about looking at another person as an object of desire, as not a full human being, but as an object to be used for our own pleasure. Looking lustfully happens when we turn to another human being and we see them as an object of desire, but we are not in a condition where we are able to fully turn toward them in their full humanity, in all the mutual vulnerability and permanent commitment that is tied up in the relationship of marriage. And Jesus wants to protect vulnerable people from one another and gives us this teaching. So what does that kind of dynamic look like? I want to share a story with you written by a friend of mine. She wrote this in her blog not very long ago. And even though that's in a public place, I'm still going to just call her Dee in this context. Dee is a Christian woman who has struggled with the use of pornography in her life. Studies show that as much as 30% of women use pornography, as much as 70% of men have looked at pornography at some point in their lives. So this is a, this is a big deal in our culture, in our age, in our community right here. And for reasons that I think would probably make some sense to you if I took time to explain them right now, Dee was a user of pornography. What changed this in her life was one day when she realized what clearly could have been known before, sometimes our hearts deceive us, when she realized one day that the people that she was looking at and the images that she was seeing were people, were human beings. She looked in their eyes on this occasion and saw them for who they were. And she realized that they, their humanity was being taken away from them. They were mere objects in this scenario. And every time she clicked on an image or a video, somebody was getting paid to take away their humanity a little bit more and to take away the humanity of more and more people. And in that moment, God got a hold of her heart and sensitized her to a reality to which she was previously not sensitive, though clearly she could have known it. And it changed her. And this is the dynamic that we're talking about here, whether it's images in pixels or print or real live people in your real live life. When we look at someone who is a human being and see them as nothing more than a physical object, we are doing what Jesus said here. We are looking lustfully at another human being. Now, Jesus knew this was going to be a big temptation for us. Jesus knew it was going to be a big challenge, so he warned us, flee. Get out of the situation. Do what you have to do. Cut yourself off from the situation that you are in. Get out of the situation that tempts you to see another human being, not as a human being, but as an object. And do what you have to do to get into a situation that helps you see other people as human beings. Now, do you think there's any law that would accomplish that for us? I think good rules are good things, and they have a good purpose, and Jesus acknowledged the, the usefulness of one very helpful boundary as he began here. But Jesus put his hope in changed 
hearts. Jesus put his hope in changed hearts, and he teaches us to put our hope in changed hearts, in hearts that have been changed because they have been loved by God and because they have been loved by other people and because they have by that love been made soft enough to see other people for what they are, people. To see them as lovely, vulnerable, fragile, human people who are every bit as precious in the eyes of God as you and I are. This is something that so many of us struggle with. This is a struggle for you in your life. As I ask you that question, are you willing to even tell yourself the truth about it? If it is a struggle, then we can first of all do what Jesus told us to do. Do what you got to do to cut yourself out of the situation where you are tempted to see other people as objects. But don't put your faith in rules or boundaries alone to change your heart. Turn to God. Turn to God for supernatural grace and strength for his work to soften and sensitize our hearts and turn to the presence of God in trusted brothers and sisters who will love you and be gracious with you and walk through you in your struggles and help us all walk together in the humanizing love of God. Jesus' teaching on these topics and others is deep and powerful and very practical. And maybe God is using these words of Jesus to speak into your life today, into an area of anger and conflict, whether it's one that already exists or maybe the conflicts that are coming. Maybe God is using these words of Jesus to speak into your life today, into an area of lust and sexuality. I think these are huge spiritual battles for us. I believe that we have a spiritual enemy who would love to hurt you, and hurt the people around you by wrecking all of our lives on these temptations. We have a spiritual enemy who wants to wreck and diminish human community as much as God wants to see it thrive and be truly good. And here in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has, since the very beginning, been announcing to us that God, by his grace and power, has come into our lives and come into our world, has shown us a better way, and has inaugurated a better way, and has, by his grace, invited us into it. And there's a good place for laws. Cities and states and nations need laws. We need boundaries to rein in our secular societies. I am very glad to live in a nation of laws. The alternative is much, much worse. But my heart beats faster and my hope gets stronger when I think about the kind of community that we can live in in the family of God. I think that Jesus has shown us and inaugurated and invited us into a much, much better way of living together. God has created and is creating a new community, created by the Spirit of God, formed in the love of God, meant for us to be, as Jesus said, a city on a hill, shining the light of God's grace and hope for all the world to see. And I cannot make that happen by my power, and you cannot make that happen by your power. It will never happen by any power on this earth, but it will happen. It will happen by the power of God. And it has already begun. Jesus came announcing the kingdom of God has come near. It is at hand. And he began to do his work in us and he invites us into it. He invites us to come closer to him and experience how good life in the kingdom of God can really be. So let's turn our hearts first to God in prayer so that by his power he can turn our hearts toward one another. Let's pray together.
Good and gracious God, we love you. We thank you for your love and your mercy and your grace for us. We thank you that you do not leave us to our own ways, but that you are accomplishing your vision for your world, for human life here on this earth. And we pray that it would come in its fullness among us. God, I pray for all of us that you would reassure us of your grace and your forgiveness for all the ways that we have surely fallen short, hurt ourselves and one another. We thank you for your faithfulness and your love. And God, I pray by your spirit you would work in our hearts. Turn us toward you and turn us toward one another. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.